Good morning, everybody. I feel like I need to introduce myself, too, since Trent did it. My name's Ryan, and uh, just like Trent, I don't like to sing in front of people either. Um, and just clarify, for those of you who are new, Trent is not my brother. We're, we're, just let's get that out of the way. Nor is he my son. Jaden. Um, we're going to uh, take our offering. And uh, so if you're new to this place, uh, just so you know, this is a way that we uh, jump in together and um, worship uh, God with what he's given us. Um, following Jesus is an interesting thing because once we begin to follow Jesus, we begin to follow Jesus with our whole selves. And that includes all of our things and our, our will and our, our bodies and our emotions and our finances and everything. And it's a tricky business figuring out how to do that and to do that well, but that's the, the business we're in here at Restoration is figuring out how to follow Jesus well. Now, I just want to share a few things. Um, the second to last song we sang, that song Reckless Love, is an interesting song because it's, it's really powerful. It talks a lot about God's relentless love for us and pursuing us. And, and it's, that sounds great, doesn't it? And at the same time, um, there's like an underlying agony in that song. The agony of ourselves <laughs> and like who we are and, and the brokenness we experience and the, the pain we've caused and the pain that's been caused to us and and so we just live in this space where uh, normal everyday life um, can become uh, something that's just really hard to experience God's love. Um, I've been reflecting a lot this week. It was about a year ago that um, I kind of, uh, I, when, I, when I share the story, I've shared, shared it a bunch, I ran into myself. Um, I started, I, I, I realized I was living and operating in a way that was just really cold and emotionless. Um, I started asking myself some really hard questions. Um, in this whole year, um, if you've been around for, I guess, this year, um, uh, I've been kind of going through a lot of change personally in my life and just reorienting. I went through a summer of rest and um, our church went through a lot of of figuring out who we are as a church. We, we're still trying to figure that out. And I think it's okay to give ourselves grace in these moments where we're just like, change doesn't happen overnight. We're learning who we are and wrestling with who we are and making changes and things like that. And one of the things that's been happening around here is we just have to recognize we've gone through a lot of change. Um, if you haven't been around this place for a while, know that we used to meet over in the Arvada Center. We used to, we had a 24-foot box truck. We went and met at 7 a.m. with a bunch of, bunch of meathead dudes. Um, we used to push 14 carts in and set it all up and do this. And then five minutes afterwards, we were tearing it all down, putting it back in carts and rolling it back into a truck and going home exhausted. And then COVID hit. And then we try to figure out how to be a church that can't really gather all together in one space. Because even if we wanted to, there wasn't one space where we could gather. So we became a house church. 
And then uh, so many things happened. We tried to go back to the Arvada Center. They, they were under new management and they weren't really interested in having a church associated with their art center. Schools weren't renting to churches at the time. We were literally homeless in a picnic shelter and we, were, we committed to praying together about where we would go, what we would do. Um, so we've gone through a ton of change. And one of the things that I think is really okay to say is like, let's just own that. Let's just acknowledge it's just been a lot of change. And in your personal life, my guess in the last three years, it's been a lot of change. Change in relationships, change, change in job, change in how you see the world, how you see God, how, how you think God sees you. And so one of the things that we are chewing on together as a leadership team is how we operate moving forward. And with the change that I've gone through as a leader, and the leadership team recognizes that I'm, I shouldn't be leading the way I've been leading, which is just like, as Ben put it a few weeks ago, this church has kind of had a lot of me involved. Just less me involved is a good thing, trust me. And so leadership team is jumping in and taking on certain tasks, and we're all becoming a little bit more focused on what we do now. Two of the postures we're looking at, we don't have all the answers, but two of the postures we're looking at is one posture is how we as a community grow, how we as a community become more like Jesus, how we as a community experience God's kingdom and become little glimpses of God's kingdom in our world. The second posture we're looking at is how our church is postured towards our community around us, the needs of our community, um, how we are positioned to be a part of what God is doing around us. And so those are two postures that are really important for us. Now, the quick answer to how to do those two things is to just start a bunch of programs. But we're not going to do that. We're actually trying to build a structure for which we uh, can then just really healthily jump into all these things, okay? And there's much more about that to come and how we're building those structures and how we're architecting our church. But one of the tools we have in both of those postures is this building, and that was an answer. We really felt like God leading us towards this old building that was initially set to get bulldozed and to become some patio homes. Um, but we got the opportunity to buy this small little chunk of land with this old building on it. And you guys rallied in the fall of 21 to do that. We didn't have all the answers of how we were going to use it. We didn't know all the you know, questions and all the problems with the building, but we decided to move ahead, and here we are. Now, what you need to understand is we did not buy this building for us. We did not buy it for us just to do this on Sunday and then go about our time. We bought it because we wanted it to be useful for what God was already up to in our community. A number of organizations have already inquired about how to use our space, including the Severe Weather Shelter Network, um, 
Arvada High School, Growing Home, Young Life, and a, and a child care startup have all inquired, well, like, can we use this space? How can we use it? When can we use it? <laughs> Things like that. And we um, haven't had all the structures in place to do that, partly because we're meeting in this room right now. The beauty of our church is we've been able to use this building for memorial gatherings and church things, and there's been a tutoring group last summer that used this and is going to use it again this summer. Um, and, and some of you may not know this, but we've even had canine police training in this building where they hide people and other things in this building and the dogs go find it. It's pretty, it's pretty awesome. And uh, just a little quick side note, the tragedy at East High School this week some of you are familiar with it. The high school young man, the, the tragic, um, he, he was found up in the mountains by one of our police dogs. And so we have one of the police dogs that runs through this building and his trainer. So it's been a heavy week. Um, but with that being said, the leadership team and the staff have come to the conclusion that it's a priority for us as a church to move this gathering west in our building to the actual sanctuary part of this building. And that sets up and that opens up this side of the building to be used for many other possible uses, stuff that we can't even imagine, including our own children and our own youth that want to get in here and start hucking balls and having fun and doing things. Um, but we want to create a sacred worship space down the hall. And if you haven't been down there, head on, you can go down there. It's empty. <laughs> um, we want to create a sacred worship space and open up this building for many possible uses. The good news is, like I shared last week, if you were here last week, we have a bunch of money already set aside to do the renovation work down the hall. Um, not a ton, but we have some. <laughs> And, and, and now we want to invite you into the conversation, meaning we want to hear some feedback from you. The good news is, like I said, we have that money. And, and, and the reality is we want to have an, we've had an inquiry and a discussion about how to use this building well and what the important parts are and how God is steering us in certain ways. We've had quotes for labor. We've priced materials. We've got a bunch of that already in place. But now we want to hear from you because there's a scope involved. There's like a baseline scope, and then there's like this all-in, let's-do-it-all scope. But we want to hear from you about that. And trust me, some of you are asking, like, how can I be involved? Well, there's going to be some work parties. You can paint. You can take stuff out to the dumpster. There's a lot of things you can be involved with. That's all to come. But we want to hear from you, and so we're going to have two building walkthroughs. One of them's this Wednesday at 6, 6 to 7. Um, you can come... The team's going to walk you through. There's going to be ways for you to have input into what's important. And then next Sunday after this gathering. Now, if you want to be involved with that walkthrough with less people, I would encourage you to come Wednesday. Um, next Sunday, there'll be a, a majority of our group will go through it next Sunday. Um, there's two walkthroughs. The scope of work is tied to a couple things. One, our, our building fund balance and two, it's also 
tied to our current income pattern. Now, I shared last week, and I'm going to just share again, our current income pattern is really, really consistent. Like, you guys are so consistent on your giving. Um, but we shared last January that we were going to be operating, if everything was the same as last year's giving to this year's giving, that we were going to have a deficit in our spending, meaning we were going to draw down some of our savings, which you guys are used to in your own personal finances sometimes. Sometimes you got to dip into savings to make the ends meet. That's currently where we're at. So we talked about a deficit spend, meaning that's just it. If, if things didn't change, we were going to draw down. Now, we're about a quarter of the way through the year, and that is the pattern. We are drawing down our general fund bank account. So it makes it difficult for us to do this all in, let's go spend some building money when we're not bringing in enough for our normal operating stuff. And so we are going to have a, it's like a twofold road here. Um, we want to move down there, we want to do the renovations, and we need to continue to operate healthily, finance, financially. So we have an actual finance meeting update April 16th as well um, to give you guys a little bit more of the data behind what I'm saying. You can actually see the numbers. But here's what I would encourage you to do today, um, as I did last week. I want you to pray about and assess how you're giving to this place, how you're calling this your family. Um, if you're new to this place, just hear this is like a family meeting, so you're just kind of listening in. Um, but if you call this your church home, assess kind of how you're giving, what you're giving. You can go to the website. You can adjust your giving. You can start giving for the first time. Um, but this is a, a great beginning moment and chapter for our church moving forward. So let me pray, and I'll set up where we're headed this morning. God, thank you for the changes that you are doing amongst us. And I'm grateful for this community and all the stories of life change and healing, even through some really difficult times and times of agony and desperation and loss and loneliness. God, you are doing all those things because you recklessly pursue us. And you pursue us as a community. And you have plans for us as a community, as a family. You have plans for us in our posture towards our city. And you have plans for us in our posture and our care and our wanting to produce each other as mature and complete in Christ. You have plans. And so, God, we recognize that, and we take this moment and this opportunity to make ourselves available, make ourselves living sacrifices, our whole selves available for what you're up to, even if we can't see what that is totally. And so, God, thanks for leading us all these years, and thanks for growing us as a family. Let me pray these things in your name. Amen. So I just want to take a moment and transition. We're on our way towards Easter. Um, how many of you are, realize that Easter's two weeks from today? Anybody, like, freak you out a little bit? Like, <laughs> it's two weeks from today. 
And so our teaching team felt like it would be a good moment to pause our Roman series. And we are going to take these next three weeks, including Easter, to talk about the theme of all three days. All three days. Good Friday. Resurrection Sunday. And that lonely in-between day of Saturday. We think all three days are really important and what it looks like to follow Jesus and experience what Jesus has on offer for us. And so this morning, uh, Randy's going to start us off and talk about Friday. Um, And I would invite you to our actual Good Friday gathering um, at 6.30, a week from this Friday. And then on Easter, we'll have two gatherings at 9 and at 10.30. So we'll have room for family and friends if you feel so inclined to invite them. But let me read to you out of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see, see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me. For trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like potsherd. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them they, uh, and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not, <clears throat> do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his, his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. 
From you comes the the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. I want to welcome up Randy. Thanks, Ryan. If you were here this summer, uh, I got to preach a couple of times, and and one of the times that I preached, I talked about um, the problem of pain and evil in the world, and the main passage that I used from that was Psalm 22. And so as I was praying over and thinking what to preach on, on this day, talk about Friday, uh, I, I kept thinking, well, Psalm 22. And then I go, well, I already talked about that. And then the more I thought about it, the more I said, no, I, I really think that Psalm 22 is a, is a great Friday message because of how well it connects to what happened on the cross. And some of the things are very explicit, right? It, it's, it's prophecy that is fulfilled um, or foreshadowing. Um, and then a lot of it, I think, is implicit, talking about the experience that Jesus had on the cross. And so what I'd like to do today is, is walking through Psalm 22, use that to, to develop a, a sort of reflective connection um, between what Jesus experienced on the cross and then what we experience today. And so um, thank you, Ryan, for reading that. Um, we'll, uh, we'll be reading it again a couple of times as, as we go through. So what I want to do is I want to I first answer um, some big questions that come to my mind when you talk about the cross and Friday. Um, and, and what I'm not going to talk about is uh, all the different ways of that, like how we are saved or that divine transaction and, and, and how it works. There's so many different theories about how it works. Um, different, uh, they're, they're called atonement theories. And uh, they're, they're really fascinating. They're really interesting. And I really actually enjoy um, dialoguing and debating them because there's so much in scripture about them. Um, however, it's hard to narrow it down to just one that works because all of them have some basis in scripture. All of them have some validity to them. What I want to focus on uh, more today is, again, the connection um, that the cross brings between Christ and us. But there's still two big questions that come up to me that I can't personally get through uh, without um, addressing it. And, And the first one is this. Did Jesus really die? And so coming from my background of teaching apologetics or defending the faith, um, this is a question that we have to answer. There is uh, a theory, it's called the swoon theory, um, and it has um, virtually no credibility. However, it still exists and it still is is, is a question. And the idea here is, is that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He only appeared dead. And so when he was taken down for the next couple of days, um, he recovered and he came alive again, or he, you know, came alive again, right? And that's how the resurrection happened, right? It's kind of how how people say. Um, But without death, there is no resurrection. 
um, without the resurrection, there's really no faith. So Jesus dying is actually a really important part of our faith. So how do we know that Jesus actually died? Well, one, uh, the Romans were very good at killing, <laughs> okay? Um, it's not likely that they made a mistake, okay? They may not have had all the medical advances and things that we do, but um, historical physicians will go back to them and they'll look at things that the Roman Empire did and they'll say, it, it's very clear that um, the Romans would have known that he, he was dead. And so the swoon theory, one of the things that comes out um, about 600 years later or so is this idea that, well, what if the Romans wanted to keep him alive, right? Because after all, Jesus did say, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, pay your taxes. So this guy is preaching to his Jewish people to give money to Rome. So he's actually very valuable to Rome. So it's entirely possible that the Roman soldiers just pretended that Jesus was dead. Maybe they drugged him a little bit to make it seem like he was dead so that when they took him off the cross, um, they could you know, give him some, some herbs and, and kind of nurse him back to health. There are many problems with this, okay? Um, one is the, the sheer violence that Jesus experienced on the cross and leading up to the cross is not something that you're going to heal in a couple of days, um, his, his, his ankle bones were likely broken. Um, he would not be walking around three days later. Um, he'd be beaten up, um, the, the, everything that would happen. There, he would not be functional after a couple of days, especially if he was in the tomb for any time not getting <laughs> treatment. So that's one of the main ways that we say like, it, it's, it's unlikely that Rome had this, this idea. But the other part of it that we look at was, it comes from the uh, book of John. And in the book of John, John describes that Jesus is impaled in the side with a spear. And when this happens, John describes it as blood and water coming out. Um, now, that's what John thought. It probably wasn't water. It was probably a type of fluid, probably one of two types of fluid. One um, would be the fluid that um, goes around your heart cavity. Um, during a cardiac arrest, when you, when you die of, of sheer like, exhaustion and pain, um, the, the cavity around your heart would feel, fill with fluid um, and it would make it hard for the heart to beat. The second one um, is the, the fluid around the lungs. And so again, um, upon death, that's where the water pools up. And so um, when you look at it from a medical examiner's perspective, they would say the fact that water and blood come flowing out means that one or both of those sacs were, uh, were broken. Um, symbolizing that he either suffocated or died of a heart attack. And so we look at this in John, and what's interesting about how the way John says it is right after he says that phrase, he says, this is what we saw. We were eyewitnesses to this. Uh, and we've talked about before just the eyewitness testimony and how we can trust the Gospels and what they're saying. And so, so beyond very, hardly any doubt at all, we can say it's very likely um, that, that water did come out. And if water is coming out in this account that John is seeing, um, then that gives us a really good clue that Jesus actually died. Um, the last thing that I would say about this is secular history confirms it. Every secular historian who writes about this time confirms that this guy, Jesus, was killed. And these are Jewish historians. They are Roman historians. Their bias is against Christianity. They don't want to see Christianity succeed. So they would only report on something that helps Christianity if it were actually true. So the good news today is that Jesus died. <laughs> okay? Um, that's the one big question that, that comes right off the bat that, that is important for us to understand. The second one is much more difficult. And that's why. Why did Jesus have to die? 
And, and to me, this question is, is in line with the question of the problem of evil and pain in the world that says, why do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen, especially to good people? Why did God choose this way for it to happen? Why couldn't God have, have chosen a different way? Or why didn't God choose a different way? Why does God sit back and do nothing as Jesus dies on the cross? And this is where I think Psalm 22 helps answer the question. Intellectually, we can talk about it. We can say, well, you know, there's people in the world and there's free will. So anytime there's free will and people, you're going to have bad things happen, right? That's just a result of it. Um, and that makes sense to us as long as we're not in the midst of pain or experiencing evil being done to us. Uh, but emotionally, when we're in those spots of pain or in those spots where evil is being done to us, um, no answer really uh, helps. And so what I think um, the only thing that, that, that we have to offer in those times um, is, is a connection uh, with each other um, and then a connection with, with Jesus and what he experiences. And so in Psalm 22, uh, you have a very typical psalm. Um, if you ever wanted to write your own psalm, which I, which I actually think is a great practice um, to do on your own, um, there are three sections that we see um, kind of interspersed throughout Psalm 22. And the first one is a complaint. Something, something is wrong. Um, it's the person's perspective of what is wrong. It's, it's what's actually going on that's wrong. And they're giving this complaint very honestly to God. Psalm 22 is one of the most honest psalms you're going to find. Um, and, and it's almost this permission to, to whine to God about the things that are going on in your life, um, especially when they're as bad as they are in Psalm 22. The second thing that we see uh, in Psalm 22 and many of the Psalms uh, is a, a declaration of who God is or who God has been. Right? You have a lot of these times where they talk about how God saved Israel in the past. And that becomes an important part because you have your complaint, what you're frustrated with, but then what you know about God as well. And then finally, uh, you have that, 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 for, that looking forward in your vision of, of what is to come, of the hope that you have. Uh, what's fun about Psalm 22 is, uh, as, we'll, as we'll talk about in a moment, is Psalm 22 not only looks forward, uh, but it also calls the victory now. Uh, and so there's this now and not yet playing on in Psalm 22 uh, that, I, that I find very enjoyable. So what I'm about to do is I'm going to walk through Psalm 22, um, section by section by section, and I'm going to give you some insights. Um, some of these insights, like I said, are very explicit connections to the story of Jesus on the cross. Some of them are implicit, right? We have to do a little bit more work, bring in other scriptures to kind of say, okay, this is probably what we're looking at here. And then honestly, some of them are just my own reflections on uh, Psalm 22 and how it connects with, with my life um, and, and how I see Jesus experiencing on the cross. And so we're going to walk through this. So starting in verse 1 of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. This is not, right? These are the words that Jesus says on the cross, right? We, we, we know that. We hear it every, every Easter, right? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and this is a direct quote from Psalm 22. So when Jesus says, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Every Jewish person in the audience knows he's talking about Psalm 22, Okay, they've studied it, they've heard it, talked about, they know this is what he's saying. 
This is the context that Jesus is crying out in. He's using the psalm of lament to say this. But what's interesting about this is we often look at it as if, as if Jesus feels abandoned. But that's not what's happening. Jesus doesn't feel abandoned by God. Jesus sees God doing nothing. In the midst of his pain and, and, and the heartache that he's experiencing and all the shame that he's experiencing, he's crying out to God saying, why aren't you doing anything? Jesus is very aware that God is there um, and yet is mad or upset or angry um, that God is not doing anything. Notice that, that for like the first time, or maybe one of the only times, Jesus is not referring to God as Father. Right? Elsewhere in, in the Gospels, Jesus is talking about, you know, we pray, my Father of art in heaven, or I only do what I see my Father doing. Right? There's, there's, there's this relational connection that Jesus has um, that, that seems to be gone in this moment. And this departure from this familiarity, I think, is significant. I debated whether I was going to share this next part, but I'm going to. Because um, it's not fair for me to say I thought about not doing it and then not do it. So it would make sense for a father to save their child. Right? It, would be, it would make absolute sense, right? If a father sees their child is, is being hurt in some way, they're going to run to them and save them. If a father sees um, their child who's about to die, they're going to run and save them. The same thing for a mother, too. Uh, I only say father just because that's um, how the Bible describes it. And, and one of the stories that we hear around this time of year um, is, is, is the story of, um, of, of the father who is in charge of changing the railroad tracks to make sure that the train is on the right tracks. And, and there's a train coming and something happens and he has to change the track because if, if, if he sends it on the wrong track, then, then the train is with full people um, is going to crash and all the people on it are going to die. Um, and so he has to change the track. But in the midst of this making this decision, he realizes that his son is playing on the other track. And if he changes the track, then he will be sacrificing his son to save all the people in the train. And we use this analogy to talk about this is the father love of God. And I don't buy it. Because if I had to choose between one of my daughters and all of you, I would choose my daughters. <laughs> okay? I'm glad, that, I'm glad you're laughing. That's, that's the intent there. But I mean, I think that's, that's the reality, right? In that intimate, like, Thai relationship that, that, that we have with our children, right? I, I don't know that in my humanness um, and in my experience that, that I would be able to make a decision for the greater good of the people sacrificing my own family. I don't think I would. I don't think I would do it. Um, and, and, and maybe I'm different or maybe I'm just being honest, um, but I don't buy it. And when I think about the Trinity, I think about the fact that there is not a point where the Trinity uh, acts separate. They're all interconnected, right? Their will, um, their, their how they act, everything is done. It's actually described best as a divine dance, right? They're not working in opposition to each other, but they are working in concert with each other. And so when Jesus calls out, my God, my God, I think Jesus is appealing to this idea of the Trinity is right there, experiencing it right there with him. This is not a moment where we're like God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are just like absent. But by Jesus invoking this, I think we see that the entirety of the Godhead 
is experiencing this as one together. And I think it's cluing us into the moment that they're all there for every bit of the weight of the moment. And continuing in verse 3, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. And our ancestors, in you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So again, this is the part where the psalmist says, okay, this is how I'm feeling, but I know that you have, have done this in the past. So, time for some audience participation. Where in Israel's history has God delivered and saved Israel? Okay, brought out of Egypt, yep. Okay, parting the Red Sea. Okay, many, many different battles of the land, some that they definitely should not have won um, and did anyways. Passover, yep. Yep, okay, providing water uh, in the wilderness, in the desert. Yep. Okay, yeah. Restoration out the Babylonian exile, only to be taken over again, but <laughs> yes. Lots of, lots of that, right? Saves them, taken over again. Saves them, taken over again. Okay, providing manna, quail. We, we could go on and on, right? about how God has delivered, how God has saved Israel. Um, and this is a very common theme that Israel would call out whenever they were in this. Like they, it's this idea of remember. But remember, God saved us with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And they would have all these things that they of how uh, God had saved them. And it's very similar, I think, for us. <clears throat> if I were to ask, and I won't, um, but if I were to ask you, where has God delivered you? many of you would have some specific examples right off the bat that you could point to. And you could talk about that. And if you don't, you also have a whole uh, bunch of scripture that could talk about it as well. Continuing in verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people, All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Jesus is being made fun of. He's sitting on the cross. People are making fun of you. You've said all these things. You've made all these claims. Like, so go ahead and do it. Come down off the cross. Save yourself. Call upon Elijah. Do all these things that, that you said you could do right in front of us right now. It's recorded in Matthew's gospel. It says it like this. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. This is his own religious people. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and then we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. So Jesus' own people, his own religious leaders, the very people that should have known who he was, are just making fun of him, right? It's not enough that he's experiencing this pain and this torture. He's also being made fun of this entire time. 
basically saying, you said all these things and we are calling your bluff and you're not doing anything. Therefore, we don't believe you. Continuing in verse nine, yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. From my, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. And this is one of those implicit things where you look at and you wonder, how does this connect with Jesus? And I think it connects because of how Jesus' birth story comes about. I think it brings us full circle, right? Jesus, from the moment he was conceived, or even before he was conceived, um, was dedicated to the service of the Lord. In Luke 128, it says this, The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So the very moment of 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 the the idea of Jesus being born, he's being pledged into service for the Lord. And for us, we can think back to that moment in our own lives where we put our faith in Jesus, we started to start walking this, this life with Jesus, we put our trust in the Lord. And we can consider how our life is different from that moment on. Or if you did it at a very early age, you consider how your life stands in stark contrast to where it could have been without putting your faith in the Lord. Or if you haven't put your faith in the Lord yet, the question could be, what is holding you back from doing so? The psalmist continues in verse 11. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. What's fun about when the Bible is very descriptive, the bulls of Bashan, for instance, is you just very quickly Google bulls of Bashan and you know exactly what the metaphor is that they're talking about. And the metaphor here is so in this valley, these bulls existed in this herd. And the way that they would um, attack their prey is they would surround it completely, kind of running around in circles and circles, surrounding it completely so that the prey was singled out and in the middle of all of these strong bulls. There's no way out. The end has come. It's completely hopeless. And so when the psalmist um, you know, it explains it. The people would know that that's what he's talking about. That's, what, that's how these bulls are, what they're famous for doing is surrounding their, their prey and, and circling in and closing in um, so that there's no escape. It's hopeless. And then in verse 14, the psalmist says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. Um, this is a good description of crucifixion. 
many of us have grown up hearing different um, ways of crucifixion being um, described. Um, there's a lot of history. Um, you can go and, again, Google that and see. Um, but the idea behind crucifixion, okay, is with, with, with the arms held out open, right, being supported, right, nails probably through the wrists, not through the hands because those would have ripped, um, right, your, your arms are there, uh, and they're, they're holding you open, and so you can't hold yourself up, right? Because um, most likely what has happened is your arms are what? They've dislocated at your shoulders. They're out of joint. So you can't hold yourself up anymore, and so you're, 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 you're concaved in, right, to the point where you begin to suffocate slowly. Um, now the Romans, like I said, are very good at killing. Um, they're also very good at torture, so a lot of times what they would do is they would install a little spike right around your seat area so that if you let yourself go down, you'd be impaling yourself. So you'd have to pull yourself back up, but your shoulders are out of joint, so you can't really do it. And it's just a constant back and forth thing until you finally uh, give up and die. Again, that takes us back to the idea that the strain on Jesus' heart, the strain on his lungs um, would have been so much that fluid would have built up around them, and that's the water that comes out. It's much more gruesome than that. Um, That's a challenge by choice. If you want to go look up um, a physician's description of the crucifixion, um, it can get very, very graphic. And so the psalmist continues, My heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Right? When Jesus is, is crucified, um, he's thirsty. Right? His mouth is dry. And so they offer him that wine and vinegar combo, which, which he rejects. Um, and the, again, what the psalmist is describing um, is, is the very real, exact experience that Jesus experiences on the cross with a dry mouth, with, 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 with the tongue sticking through the mouth. I mean, if you've ever been really thirsty, like really thirsty, and your tongue like sticks through your mouth because there's no moisture to keep it from that, or that's, what, that's what the psalmist is describing. That's what Jesus is experiencing on the cross, is complete and utter just dryness. In verse 16, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. Again, he's being made fun of. Um, Pierced his hands and his feet. Okay, that's one of the obvious um, explicit examples of we know um, they're talking about crucifixion um, in this point. All my bones are on display. Uh, This is a metaphor to describe the fact that none of Jesus' bones were broken. Okay, it was, it was prophesied that none of his bones would be broken. Um, and one of the common things that would happen in crucifixion, uh, if you were living too long, um, the Romans would just come up and they would break your legs. Because if you can't stand on your legs anymore, right, you're, you're concaved and you, you, you suffocate that much faster. And so the fact that Jesus' bones weren't broken is part of a prophecy um, that's that's um, from, I believe, Isaiah, that's connected to what Jesus is experiencing um, in this moment as well. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. 
Uh, that's something that we hear every Easter. It talks about um, how the soldiers um, cast lots or, or drew straws or rolled dice. It's, it's, it's this kind of way of, of, of basically choosing who gets what. Um, and there's, there's other, other, other methods they talk about it, but for this, in this case, it's basically, okay, who gets his clothes? Um, but what's interesting about this is it says this in John 19. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. The garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. When we look at the depiction of Jesus in art um, or in some way, any kind of depiction of Jesus on the cross, he's always covered just a little bit. But this would not have been the case. Jesus would have been completely naked in front of everybody. And that's uncomfortable (laughs) for us to think about. But that's the reality. Naked and alone is how Jesus experiences the cross. There was no dignity in the way that Jesus died. And in verse 19, it switches back again. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. Uh, This is actually a a reference that comes back again um, with the author of Hebrews. Um, Hebrews 2, 10 through 18 says this, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are, some, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, and this is a direct quote from Psalm 22, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And he says, here I am and the children uh, God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by fear and death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered When he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so this connection from Psalm 22 to Jesus' death on the cross all the way to the author of Hebrews paints this picture for us that says Jesus is able to withstand the cross as fully human. Right? If we ask ourselves, why was Jesus able to do all the things that he was able to do? And our answer is, well, he was God. We miss the point. Because Jesus, as recorded in Philippians 2, had, had, had given up those rights to being God. Jesus is experiencing everything fully human just as we are. And like the author of Hebrews says, this allows him to understand what our suffering also feels like. We suffered 
Because he suffered, just as we do, he can help us when we suffer. And so in the most basic way, this is what we talk about when we talk about empathy. But in our moment of greatest pain, our greatest need, uh, empathy is often not enough. And I think that's why Jesus starts off the psalm saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not enough that Jesus knows that the Trinity is hurting in this moment. That doesn't make him feel better. He's saying, why aren't you doing anything? So what we do get from this is a God that does experience our pain in the same way that we experience it. And it's on this point, and I I say this probably every other time I preach or speak at something. There's a great quote from Mother Teresa. She's She's being interviewed by a reporter, and the reporter says, so tell me, when a baby dies in an orphanage in Calcutta, where is God? And her response is simply, right there, weeping. Where are you? We have a God who has become vulnerable to the human experience to demonstrate that it's not just enough to know that people feel pain. God must also feel that pain with us. Verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Right? We have that mistake that we make when we think that God turns his face away from the moment that the sin is placed on Jesus and Jesus is dying on the cross. That's not true. Psalm 22 um, is, in quarter, is encapsulated foreshadowing what Jesus is saying. If Jesus says, hey, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like, Take a look at Psalm 22. Psalm 22 explicitly says he has not turned his face away. It's absolutely true that God can be in the presence of sin because in this moment, the entire Godhead is in the presence of sin. The psalmists um, and later Jesus are giving us this picture that in our time of suffering, God is not absent. God is right there. Not necessarily fixing the problem the way we want, Uh, many of you know um, the story of, of, of my wife, Aubrey, um, year, eight, about eight years ago. Um, she got really sick, um, and she, she almost died, um, and it was a terrible experience. Um, that's the short version. <laughs> um, I spent years so mad at God for that moment, because I remember walking past the chapel, going into the chapel, and praying for my wife to be healed, and leaving to grab some clothes to go back to the hospital, and she only got worse and worse and worse. And I was so mad for years about that. Why couldn't God have just done something? Why couldn't God have fixed it the way that I thought God should fix it? And years, years down the road, I was reading a, a book, and, uh, and the, the, the author said something to the effect of, have you forgiven God for not showing up the way that you wanted? And that struck me. And I realized that God doesn't need my forgiveness, but I need to forgive God for not showing up the way that I wanted. I don't know 
Why? Um, and we, we, can, we, can, we can argue about why God does it in this way with Jesus on the cross, but we don't know why. All we know is that when we weep, God is weeping with us. And so as I began to pray and as I began to forgive God, my anger melted away. And as my anger melted away, I began to understand where that feeling of anger actually came from. Right? In large places, it's a place of fear, right? Now, whenever my kids or my wife get sick, that's exactly where my brain goes back to, is that moment eight years ago. And, and I'm afraid. But I can deal with fear, knowing what it is, knowing what to call it. What I can't deal is anger because it just blocks me from considering anything else. And so when I began to forgive God, we, we, we under, or when we forgive people in general, um, it, it, it exposes our real emotions. So what would that be like, maybe in your life, to forgive God for not showing up the way that you wanted? And the psalmist closes with this, verse 25. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. And the psalm that begins with a why God, why question ends with a victory cry. This is why I believe that when Jesus says it is finished on the cross, he doesn't do it in a sense of defeat, but he does it claiming the victory that the people have been waiting for. And there's this confusion of tense in the, in the last couple lines. Proclaiming to a children yet unborn, he has done it. And that's where I think we have to understand that we live both in the now and not yet kingdom, the kingdom that is constantly arriving. We are going to experience a lot of cross-like pain in our lives. We will feel abandoned by God, or angered that God doesn't do what we want, doesn't fix things how we want. And yet we also know that the knowledge of the victory isn't always comforting <laughs> in those times. But in times of peace, in times of love, times of clarity, we recall um, what is outlined um, in Revelation 21, 1 through 4, which is to come. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, and heard in a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order has passed away. If, the, if Trent, if you guys want to come up. As we move into a time um, of, of communion um, that Ryan will lead us in in a moment, um, 
I want to read through Psalm 22 one last time. And I'm going to pause occasionally um, at, at some, some parts that I think are good parts to stop and reflect on. Um, and I would just encourage you to reflect and allow um, the Spirit to speak to you however that needs to happen today. Um, so you can make yourself comfortable. Um, you can close your eyes. Um, you can put your hands kind of out on your laps in a receiving posture if you would like. And let's just reflect on Psalm 22. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cry out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near. And there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tear their prey. Open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword. 
my precious life from the power of dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him. All your descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship, and all who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it.